Rosalie here. I am the little helper of the Live Feisty Media Podcasts. The Iron Women Podcast, I think, is one of the best podcasts in the whole entire world. I want to be a professional triathlete when I grow up because it makes us healthy and strong to do lots of triathlon. I also think I might want to be a hairdresser. Just saying. You can help Iron Women grow by using the codes Iron Women when you order from our sponsors. It really helps. Those sponsors are Crave Jerky, F2C Nutrition, Sound Probiotics, Coffee Method, Rudy Project, and Smashfest Queen. Go to ironwomenpodcast.com to find all codes and links. And now, introducing your hosts, Alyssa Kadeski and Haley Chura. Hi, Haley. It's a big week here for you. How are you doing? Hi, Alyssa. I'm doing good. I am leaving tomorrow for Ironman Brazil. So I'll be racing this Sunday down in Florianopolis. This is one of my favorite races, and I am super excited to be heading back to Floripa and to race my first Ironman of the season. I'm so excited for you to just to get to spectate all of the things this weekend for you. I'm really happy that you're getting ready to go. And are you all packed up? How's the travel situation looking? Everything going well? Yeah, I'm doing pretty good. My bike is packed, got it all washed. It was beautiful out today. So I got it all washed and packed up. And um, yes, I, I made it to the grocery store and got all my snacks for the plane. So I'm in pretty good shape. You know, there's always those last minute things, toiletries and stuff that I need to put in. And um, I have a quick, couple of quick workouts to do tomorrow morning before I, I head to the airport. But in general, it's been smooth sailing and things are as good as they can be. So we'll just have to go and see what happens. That's so exciting. I'm thrilled for you. What day do you arrive there? We'll have to be checking in with you maybe over social media so that we can follow along the adventure. Yeah. So this podcast will come out on Thursday and I will have arrived on Wednesday. So by the time everyone is listening to this, I will be in Floripa. Hopefully I'll post some stuff on Instagram at Haley Chura 23 is on Instagram at Haley Chura on Twitter. Yeah. Don't follow the other Haley Chura. <laughs> but, um, can you believe there's more than one, but definitely I'll try to post some pictures because it's, it's beautiful there. I've, I've talked to you know, Brazilian pro or former pro Anna Lydia Borba from Flo's Journal. She's sent me some pictures today of the weather and it's, it looks fantastic. It's like blue skies, 70 degrees. I think it's going to be really nice, which last year we had a super rainy day. So I'm pumped to have some nice weather. That's awesome. I hope you also had some maybe good weather in Bozeman for taper week, because let me tell you, we had like biblical rain situations here on the East Coast. It was pretty rough week, actually. There was just a lot of wetness. Like I was like, I don't know if my feet are ever going to dry out ever again. But, you know, we, we survived that. And my big news of the week, Haley, is that I broke my phone screen finally. Oh, <laughs> After, this is the first time ever? Yeah. And I dropped my phone a lot, a lot. And... I finally broke, but I think this gives me a good reason. Maybe, you know, in the next time we talk, I'll be telling you about my new upgrade in my life. I think I have a six, an iPhone six. So I think there's room for me to improve. I think I can go to what's like the X eight. Yeah. The 10. Like the 10. Go to the Whichever 10. has the portrait so, mode. That's like my dream for Ramona. Portrait I can mode take is portrait great. mode Ramona pictures. I went from a five to a 10 and it was like life changing, but it was, I dropped my, I dropped my phone at 70.3 worlds last year when I was cheering for the men's race and shattered it. But then I still used it for like through Christmas and then I finally got a new one. But so it's the portrait mode is fantastic. And when you, I think from the six to like an eight or a 10 is, is a big jump. So you will definitely notice, but I took a picture today in portrait mode and, um, I sent it to our, our lovely co-sponsor Lauren Palmer from smash. And she was a uh, very, thrilled to finally get the picture she's been asking for. <laughs> That's good. Well, she is a good judge of the picture taking skills. So if you have LP's approval, then it's a good one. 
Yes. It helps when you have a good camera. I will say that. But did you hear the big announcement that came out last week? I did. So podcast guest from January, I believe, you know, one of her many accolades is being on the Iron Women podcast, I think. Leanda Cave officially announced her retirement this past week. And I think just from the both of us, we just want to give a shout out to Leanda and uh, wish her all the best. And, you know, I think if you go back and listen to that episode we had with her, she talks a lot about how, you know, she has slowly shifted over the past couple seasons to some of her other work with Team LC and some other advocacy stuff she's done. So, you know, she definitely has plenty on her plate still, I know, and she'll be involved in the sport for many years to come, regardless of her not racing anymore. But her career, her career was one where, you know, I grew up watching Leanda and it, it was kind of, you know, it's weird to think that these women are retiring Haley and, and we're kind of filling these voids. So I don't know. Yeah. I think she won, she won Kona when it was, it was that was my last age group race was when she won Kona. And so that is one that's definitely etched in my memory. And I remember getting to train with her once in Tucson, her and Hillary. And I was just, I was on cloud nine as a rookie pro getting to train with the reigning world champion. I was like, Oh my goodness, I've made it like this was, you know, this was totally worth everything. (laughs) So yeah, she'll be missed. But again, she's not going anywhere. We talked to her all about team LC and her philanthropic um, endeavors there. And so I'm excited to have someone like her kind of moving on in the sport, but still staying in the sport. And Haley, also this week, we got some more mailbag questions. So great stuff to talk about here. And as a reminder, people can ask away their questions at ironwomenpodcast at gmail.com anytime you want to. So let's tackle those, Haley. The first one came in from Mandy and she did her first triathlon last year. And it was a sprint. You know, she kind of jumped into it from not a lot of background in swimming, uh, long distance running or biking or anything like that. So she managed to get her fitness, do a sprint great, you know, like the sport. But the big issue she had during her training was her anxiety of water, especially open water kept creeping up. And I'll kind of just read her email. I think she talks about it best. I pushed through the pool training and my swimming skill was improving. She grew up going to the lake all summer, so she knew she'd be okay in the lake. However, race day came and my adrenaline and anxiety was so high to begin with that when the sound went off to start the swim, I got about 50 meters out and had a panic attack. I was on my back kicking so that I could continue to move forward, but it was getting hard to breathe. I held onto a kayak for a while and finished the rest of the course doing backstroke. She still couldn't put her face in the water. Once she got on her bike, the anxiety washed away and she finished the race. So now we're fast forwarding. It's this year. The anxiety in the water has only increased since the triathlon, so she made the decision to take out the swim portion and race duathlons this season. She loves racing. She doesn't want to quit that, but she can't shake the feeling like she's given up by doing this. So do we have tips for conquering open water anxiety? Is it okay to do only duathlons? And how should she change her training to accommodate this? Currently, she's replaced the swim days with strength training. You know, as many age groupers are working full time and doing a lot of things on weekends too. So Haley, what do you think? This is an interesting one. Yeah. So my thoughts with anxiety is that you kind of have to decide how important is swimming to you and how important is doing a triathlon to you. And if it is something that's super important, like this is something you need in your life, then I would probably suggest that she, you know, get some professional help, you know, talk to a psychologist. And because I think there probably are things, you know, that a psychologist, someone who's trained in anxiety can, can help her, you know, different exposure therapies, different tactics and, you know, things to try and ways to train. So I would probably say that would be my first bit of advice. And then I'd also say, if it isn't that important to you, if you're happy doing duathlons, do duathlons. Like, I don't think you need to have a, you know, be able to do open water swimming and not have anxiety to live a happy and fulfilled life. So if that's not important to you, then embrace the duathlon lifestyle. Yes. Go do your strength training, enjoy run, bike, run, do some run, bike, run, crazy run, bike, run sessions, you know, set big duathlon goals. And that can be just as big and fulfilling as doing a triathlon. So if you enjoy that, there is no need to, you know, to force yourself to go do that swimming. Totally there. You know, like if you look at things like, you know, I would love to be like a rock climber or something like that, but I'm terrified really of heights and that kind of situation. So 
you know, it's totally okay that I don't force myself into these situations that cause like extreme anxiety, right? So when you kind of look at it through that lens, you realize, oh, it is okay to not put myself in these positions where I'm just really uncomfortable and not enjoying life. So that I totally agree with you there. And then I also think, Haley, that open water swim anxiety is a very, very common problem for people. Even like, you know, my coach, Hillary Biscay, who went to the Olympic trials for swimming, she even talks about it a lot, actually, if you talk to her. And she that's why we specifically at our women's camp do um, an open water swim session with, with the women to talk about this. And it, you know, because she, again, is such a good swimmer. And when she puts that wetsuit on, that restricted breathing gets to her and she has the exact same thing happen to her. So she's learned to conquer it. And, you know, when she was racing was coming out of the water first, despite that. And I know one of her big tips is always the counting situation. So you get in and when the race starts, you don't think about anything other than counting your strokes. And you just count to, I usually have athletes go to 40 and you count to 40 and do not let your mind wander on anything else. And then when you get to 40, you look up and you sight. And then you start over and you count to 39 and then you count to 38, you count to 30 and you, it takes a lot of practice to not let your mind wander to the other things that are creeping in. But if you keep your mind focused on just the counting, by the time you kind of do relax a little bit, you're going to be halfway through the swim because of all the counting, you know? And the second thing I would say is just as you're conquering it, go into the races, knowing you're going to let everyone start ahead of you. And you're going to start when the water's calm, when, you know, you don't have hundreds of your friends thrashing all around you and making it chaotic because that is different. And so I think just looking at it as it's okay to kind of ease yourself into that start is totally fine too. And then just in terms of how training changes, I think it sounds like she's doing great. You know, she added in some strength training. I think that's good. Um, and then duathlon specific, you can do some fun, like duathlon specific workouts, you know, do a easy bike ride to warm up. And then I would always hop on the treadmill and do kind of a conversational 5k. And then you jump back on the trainer and do, you know, a hard 30 minute effort and then back on the treadmill and you go as hard as you can for the 5k. You know, those kinds of workouts are really fun and different. I think it opens up a new door for you to try some different stuff. Yeah, I like that, that uh, bike run, bike run. Um, nice combo there. But no, those those are great advice. I might have to try out that counting tactic. sounds very interesting. <laughs> I know Hillary uses it herself, so tried and true for sure. Yes, and I hear we have another mailbag question as well. We do. So this one came from Anne, and she has the question about how to get people to understand that she is not interested in racing an Ironman Haley. So she's wondering why is it that people feel like when they're talking to her about triathlon, they try to tell her that she quote needs to do one. You know, she's been doing triathlon for five or six years and she loves Olympic racing and everyone in her tri club that she trains with though, keeps asking her when she's going to do an Ironman. And she's just kind of like, I'm not interested in doing one for now. I find Olympic racing challenging enough. And everyone else is using it as stepping stones. So how can she kind of, you know, approach this question when she's asked? Okay. I like this question because I think it has to do a lot with confidence and just confidence in your own plan and your own path, which is so hard to do in life. And I don't think Anne is alone here because I know Sarah True, who we interviewed several months ago, her husband, Ben True is the American record holder in the 5k on the road. And Sarah once was telling me a story about how when Ben was on an airplane, the person sitting next to him was asking him, you know, what kind of races do you run? And he's like, Oh, I run the 5k. And they're like, have you ever done a marathon? And he's like, no. And I think when the person was leaving, he's like, you know, someday, someday you'll get that marathon and you'll be a real runner. You know, I think was implied that then he'll be a real runner. I mean, it doesn't matter that he runs 13 minutes flat in the 5k. It was all about the marathon. So Anne's not alone. It is how Ironman is marketed. It's how marathons are marketed that longer is better. And that's just kind of what society is telling you to do, but it doesn't have to be that way. And if you have the confidence to, you know, believe in your own path, I don't think it, it matters. And again, I come from swimming and no one is asking you know, when Caleb Dressel set the world best in the 50 free and swam 17 seconds, no one's like, when are you going to do a 1500? <laughs> like, you know, it's like, wow, that was an awesome 50 free. I don't think anyone asked Usain Bolt when he's going to do the marathon either. So things can change and maybe she can just be part of that change, you know, go out there and race hard and fast and short and 
you know, make that the cool thing to do. Yeah, I think those are all good tips for her. And I would say something I always use when I'm asked questions that I don't even know how to respond to, but you know, is to just like own it and act really excited. So if someone asks you that, be like, oh my God, I love racing Olympic distance. Like, it's just so fun for me. And just keep talking, you know, be like, I really like pushing myself. I really like that I can race really often and I don't have to recover as long between races. And I think it's just so fun to go out there for, you know, three hours and just smash myself doing it is what I, I just can't get enough of it. And then before they even have a chance to respond, ask them about their, themselves because people love <laughs> to talk about themselves usually. And so just be like, oh, and your son was in a play the other day. How did that go? You know, like just totally change the subject, ask them about themselves and they'll forget about it, I think. So great question though. Peer pressure to do Ironman is a real, real thing in triathlon. Yes, but I like this. Let's, you know, embrace the Olympic distance and it it can, it can be really hard. (laughs) There's a, you know, shorter does not equal easier by any means. And, um, I, yeah, so I admire everyone at every distance who gets on a start line, but Alyssa, we have some exciting, you know, ways, reminders of people looking for ways to support the podcast and our, sponsor coffee method. In case people don't know, they now have two blends of coffee that support the Iron Woman podcast. The first one is the traditional Iron Woman blend, the light roast, easy on your stomach, great for pre-workout. And then they've added the feisty blend, which has more dark roast, a bolder flavor. And so people can either use the link on the Iron Woman podcast website to navigate to the coffee method page, or they can go directly to coffee method, scroll down and get a subscription, get a half pound bag, you know, pick whatever they want and, um, use the code iron women and they get a little bit of a discount. So just a reminder. And Haley, there's also another thing you can do to support us now. So if people go to livefeisty.com, there's a new tab up at the top and it says shop and you can shop. And we have tanks, we have tees, we have leggings, hoodies, all sorts of fun stuff that you can wear to support Live Feisty. And I hear, Haley, that the tanks are the super soft ones that people loved that Sarah and Ashley were wearing in Texas. So you guys can now all get your hands on them yourselves. Yes, livefeisty.com. Look for that shop tab. And thank you for supporting us and, you know, wearing us out in the world too, because that's kind of fun. And Haley, we have a really fun interview coming up for everyone. Tell us all about who we're about to chat with. So today we are talking to Megan Hotman, and Megan is the cyclist lawyer. She has represented more than 100 cyclists in individual cases, provided counsel to cycling groups and bike shops. And also frequently provides education seminars to cyclists, motorists, and law enforcement. And she's even written a book on bikes and bike crashes. So Megan is not just a lawyer, though. She's raced and won all types of cycling races. She's done road races, crits, time trials, cycle cross, gravel races. Are there any other kinds of bike races? I don't know. But And she's raced Ironman Arizona. So she is one of us. She's an Iron Woman. So Megan's mantra is that she wants to improve lives and communities one cyclist at a time. And it's her own personal mission to get more people riding bikes. So I'm super excited to hear from Megan, learn more about bike safety and what we can do to make the world a little bit friendlier for bicyclists. We are grateful to be supported by Crave Jerky, Coffee Method, F2C Nutrition, Sound Probiotics, Rudy Project, and Smashfest Queen. Our podcast partner, Crave Jerky, is hosting a Find Your Fit contest from now through June 2018. All you have to do is post a selfie while working out. That should be easy for our listeners. And you could win $300 in gift cards from Flywheel, ClassPass, or Gaiam Yoga. And of course, Crave Product. Use hashtag CraveBetter and hashtag SweepstatesEntry. One caveat though, you must be a U.S. resident, 18 years or older to enter. Also, hashtag LiveFeisty so we can see your entry too. Details will be posted in the show notes for this podcast on LiveFeisty.com. Hi, Megan. Welcome to Iron Women. Hi, thanks for having me. 
And Megan, you call yourself the cyclist lawyer. And I've read that in many circles, you are the go-to lawyer for anything cycling related. So I kind of am curious, like, how did you get to this point? What was your path? And are you really just a lawyer who only handles cases involving bicycles? The answer to your second question is a succinct yes. I only represent injured bicyclists. That is all I do. And the way that I came to this practice, I like to tell people actually that it found me. I was in law school when I discovered my love of cycling. A very short bout in triathlon quickly taught me that I'm a subpar swimmer. I was a excellent cyclist and then the race would run away from me every time. And so process of elimination brought me to the bike right about my third year of law school. Very unexpectedly, I was not looking for an athletic pursuit. I was only ever just a subpar runner. I did track and cross country in high school. I ran marathons in college just to stay in shape, just sort of randomly tried these triathlons briefly, found cycling. It was like, oh my gosh, I'm about to graduate from law school. And I've completely fallen in love with this thing that seems to like me back. It was like the first time I showed actual athletic potential. And so as I was preparing to graduate from law school, I had to make a choice about what type of job to pursue. As a new lawyer, typically you're expected to work really big hours. And I knew that I wanted to see where cycling was going to take me. So I chose to work for a judge, which was terrible pay, but government hours, meaning 40 hour work week. So I could still train and race and um, did that for a couple of years, then ended up working for a second judge during which time I ended up upgrading to a cat one and really just got super duper serious about cycling. And it was my thing. And I wanted to figure out how to go pro, but I didn't know what to do about my legal career. And it was time to join private practice in some way. And all I wanted to do was see where I could go with bike racing. And so in short, the more I raced, the more people sort of knew me as a lawyer, but didn't know what I did. And a couple people got hit by cars and approached me at races. One woman, um, we call her client zero. She was a woman I raced against and just adored. And she was unfortunately hit. And she contacted me and said, I have no idea what kind of law you practice, but this happened. Could you help me? And by that point, I had started working as an associate for a law firm in Boulder. And I went to my boss and I said, this woman is hurt and I'd really like to help her. Is this a case that we could sign up? And he said, sure. So we signed up her case and we did very, very well. But more importantly, it was my moment, my aha moment, where I realized that for me to truly thrive in the practice of law would require that I would have to have clients that I cared about as deeply as I did her, that I could see no other alternative in the practice of law unless it was working for people like her. And what an incredible bonus to get to work in the realm that was my true passion. And so sure enough, a few more cyclists contacted me. And then at about that time, it became clear that for me to have the time and schedule flexibility to train and race the way I wanted to, I would need to work for myself. So pretty much against everyone's advice and suggestion. I started my own law firm at 29 and they said, you can't do that. And I said, but why not? And so I did. And I had a couple of cycling clients that I signed up and thought for sure I would need to do something else that the cycling cases would not be the exclusive focus, surely. But in fact, that is exactly what has happened. And I have handled cases all over the country and have co-authored a book and was fortunate to be featured in Outside Magazine, which led to Bryant Gumbel having me on HBO Real Sports. And it's just been an incredible journey of this incredible and super lucky combination of passion and purpose. Megan, I think we could talk to you probably like a whole other episode here on <laughs> just that alone, right? And so I before, you know, we get into some of the cycling questions then, and, you know, the law questions, I guess, I would love to just ask you, a lot of our listeners, I think, are women who are sitting here wanting to take a, the next jump, you know, whatever that might be, maybe they are thinking about going pro or something like that. And you did, you know, a massive jump by, you know, at 29, starting your own law practice. And I know, like, Haley has a similar story when she left accounting and, you know, things like that. But, you know, for you to share your story, how long was it before you felt like, okay, I'm going to make it because I know a lot of times when you do that, you have, you know, weeks, months, maybe years, but it, it does come together. So I love talking to women about like how, how long was it before you really knew and what was that kind of interim period like for you? Uh, I mean, not a day goes by now, even that I'm not saying to myself some version of 
what are you doing? And what's tomorrow going to look like? And I mean, there are no guarantees for sure. I feel like I have arrived in the sense that I get to create and craft each day as my own. I don't spend two hours commuting to and from an office. I don't, I'm not chained to a desk from eight to five or however many magical hours I get to set up my day the way that I want to set up my day, work when I feel most mentally productive, take a break and go ride my bike when I need exercise and fresh air. I have structured my caseload such that I'm not overly committed. I'm not stretched thin. My bandwidth is not uh, overly taxed. I get to bring my fullest, most present self to every case and every client because I don't take on more business than I can manage. So I don't know as an entrepreneur, if you feel like you've ever arrived, there's always the next thing or the next sense of, you know, security or, um, you know, financial independence or whatever that may be. But certainly every day I wake up knowing that the day is mine and I own my destiny. And I will say that back when I was working as an associate, uh, there were two main things that prompted me to go out on my own. And it was not that I had a lot of money saved up in the bank account. That was not it. Uh, I took a total leap, a total leap and left a very well-paying job to start this, this crazy venture. One was that I wanted to give myself every single opportunity possible to try and qualify for the Olympic long team for London 2012. I knew it was a complete pipe dream. I knew that there was like a one in a million chance, but I wanted to commit every financial and time and coaching and training opportunity I possibly could for two years, 2010, 2011, leading into 2012. I didn't make it. I didn't make it onto the Olympic long team. But in the meantime, I got to race World Cups and I got to train with the women that ultimately went to London and won the silver medal in the Olympic pursuit. And I had nothing to do with their journey or their success, but I got to be part of it in some of the training sessions and some of the travel. And it was just remarkable even to be on that stage in the presence of incredible athletes and be at these world cups and be at these training camps. And just frankly, to be able to say to myself, I have no regrets. I didn't make it. I didn't think I probably would, but I spent two years trying and look at what an amazing thing it's turned into with respect to my law practice and who would have thought, right. And I could have stayed where it was comfortable. I could have stayed at the job where I was making great money and someone else was managing the, you know, overhead stress. And I just had to show up and put in my time. Um, but gosh, I wouldn't trade this for the world. And my biggest regret when people ask me is frankly, that I didn't do it sooner. I wish I'd started my own law firm even sooner, but things came together. And the second big part of that was I was commuting two hours a day and I just didn't want to spend that time in the car. I just didn't want that to be part of my lifestyle. So to anyone who's thinking of making a huge leap, I will tell you that when your heart nudges you and nudges you and nudges you, there's a reason. And you're going to continue to feel tension until you answer that call. And there is absolutely, in my mind, no greater satisfaction than just taking the, taking the leap and going for it. Cause I promise you're going to build the parachute or the airplane on your way down. You just will. Well, Megan, your leap is definitely our gain, not in, only in just hearing that incredible story, which I think a lot, a lot of people can probably relate to pieces of that at least. And, um, it's an incredible story, but also in, in you being able to come on to the podcast and share some of your expertise. And I kind of wanted to start out with yeah the, you know, us as cyclists. So most of our listeners are triathletes and a lot of us spend a lot of time riding our bikes outside. So I kind of wanted to just talk about best practices as a cyclist. Like, are there things we should always be bringing with us on every ride? What should we wear or not wear? Do you have suggestions on lights or anything that help us stay visible to motorists? I'm going to make this question as short as possible because this is definitely something I could talk for hours about. Number one is that the, the law in every state says that cyclists are vehicles. And so that means we have all the same rights and all the same obligations. So when you ask me best practices, I want you to do the things that you do on your bike that you do in your car because most of us are also motorists. That means signaling your turns. That means not asking people to read your mind. That means being predictable and using lights from sunset to sunrise, just like you would in your car. That means if you're going downhill, you need to obey the posted speed limit sign and stay at or below the speed limit, even if you're descending, which we know you can easily reach speeds in excess of the speed limit on your bike. It means doing things like moving over to the right-hand side of the road and waiting if emergency vehicles are trying to pass you. Um, When you ask me about things that we should not wear, headphones. That's the number one thing I would ask people to leave at home. 
We've been working a lot with law enforcement. In fact, just today we were filming some bike safety videos here in Golden. And one of the specific scenes we filmed was a cyclist riding along with headphones. And meanwhile, the fire truck is behind her with lights and sirens and she's clueless. And I hear that all the time from law enforcement and fire personnel that cyclists have their ears full and don't hear anything. And not just that, but being able to hear traffic around you. Uh, I'm constantly surprised at how many cyclists wear headphones on group rides, which is so dangerous because you need to be able to communicate with other cyclists. With respect to things that we should bring with us, you should always have some form of identification. This also just came up this morning with law enforcement. They were talking about collisions they had responded to where the cyclist is unconscious, isn't wearing road ID, doesn't have any name sticker on their frame, doesn't have a cell phone, doesn't have an ID in their pocket, no way to contact family or friends. Um, you are not required to carry your driver's license to, to ride a bike because you obviously don't have to have a driver's license to ride a bike, but you should always have some form of ID on you for this reason so that they can call for help for you if need be. And also, if you are unfortunately on the receiving end of a citation from law enforcement, you do need to be able to provide your identity. That doesn't mean you have to show them a driver's license, but you need to at least be able to tell them who you are. And that can mean showing them. I personally like to carry an old expired driver's license that still has a good photo of me and still has a good address. That way, just in case I wash it and I ruin it, it's not my real driver's license. Uh, but even carrying a color copy of it is really helpful. You talk about other best practices. You know, when I talk about doing things that we would do as a motorist, one of the one of the biggest points I like to make to cyclists is imagine yourself as the motorist behind you or behind your group ride and how would you feel and what would you want? So when cyclists are asking me things like, should we be two abreast or should we go single file? You know, the law says various things on that uh, with respect to impeding traffic. But quite frankly, if you just use the golden rule analysis, if you're in the car behind that group of cyclists, what would you want to be able to overtake those people safely? And really, the more I work with motorists and citizen groups, the more I realize that the biggest tension really comes from the um, uncertainty and the unpredictability that cyclists often exhibit. They literally don't know what we're about to do because they're not accustomed to us signaling our turns and acting predictable. They consider us like erratic little squirrels that are about to do something totally unforeseeable, and they're scared to death that they're going to hurt us or hit us. Uh, it's very, very rare that a motorist sets out in the morning when they get in their car and says, okay, I, I'm going to go hurt a cyclist today. That's not the situation. It's usually purely of, of a combination of, you know, negligence and carelessness and perhaps a bit of unpredictability on the part of the cyclist. So use those hand signals, use eye contact, communicate with, with motorists. It's also a really amazing magical moment to create those human to human connections. I have so many amazing conversations with people at red lights and just visuals and waves and thanks and high fives and like the two finger up, you know, I'm from the Midwest. We wave at everybody kind of thing. I just really enjoy that about cycling. I love it. Yes, you're vulnerable, but at the same time, you're out there meeting and interacting with people in ways that you don't in your car. Can you talk a little bit about the insurance piece? Because as a driver, we know it's great to have car insurance, you know, to cover you in the case of all sorts of things. What about as a cyclist? Like, does your car insurance cover you as a cyclist or, you know, what options would you have there? What's your best route to take? Great question. To answer your question about does your car insurance cover you on your bike? Yes. The answer is yes. There's two specific portions of your auto policy that cover you when you're on your bike. In most states, it's called MedPay, MPC. MedPay coverage in a few states, it's still referred to as PIP coverage, personal injury protection, but that is coverage that you're paying for, for no fault medical payments coverage, which means it, as long as a vehicle's involved, so if you hit the car, if the car hits you, obviously applies in your, in your car, but also on your bike, you get the default amount is $5,000 of no fault, undisputed money to put towards your medical bills straight away. And as the move with health insurance goes more and more towards plans with higher and higher deductibles, this med pay becomes more and more important because it's going to pick up the first $5,000 of your medical payments. That can include co-pays, deductibles, chiropractor, massage, aromatherapy, acupuncture, all the things that health insurance maybe doesn't pay, personal training, physical therapy, um, those types of things. But in addition, like I said, it's going to help you get that deductible met, which is huge for uh, for most cyclists who don't potentially have five grand just sitting in the uh, bank account to shell out for medical bills. The other second part of your auto policy that I want you to look at and make sure you have nice high limits is UM, UIM, which stands for unenforced 
uninsured, underinsured motorist coverage. This is important because if you get hit by someone who has no coverage or who flees the scene in a hit and run, they are treated, you are treated as though you've been hit by an uninsured motorist. Um, so that coverage is going to kick in on your behalf. If you are hit by someone who doesn't have enough coverage to cover your damages, which would be underinsured motorist coverage, this policy is also going to kick in to help cover the remainder of your damages. In Colorado, for example, you only have to have 25,000 in bodily injury limits, and that's true for most states. And quite frankly, if you're a cyclist hit by a car, you're going to hit that 25,000, as you know, from just the ambulance and a few hours in the ER. And so if you get 25,000 from the driver and that's it, that's all you're going to get. Whereas if you have UM, UIM with nice high limits, you have a whole second phase or second uh, insurance policy to tap into to pay all your medical bills, lost wages, pain and suffering, all the things. So, um, and keep in mind, these coverages are for your benefit. They're not for other people that you might harm or injure in your car. So these are for you and your family. So these are um, parts of your policy you definitely don't want to be cheap with. And kind of going back to rules of the road and what you mentioned about cyclists and motorists both having, you know, kind of very similar rules. Obviously, these rules vary state to state. And like you mentioned, you're based in Colorado. But are there any kind of laws that are pretty much applicable nationwide that we can talk about? Um, you mentioned cyclists riding to abreast. Can cyclists ride on the sidewalk? Do we need to stop at stop signs? Those kind of things. Great question. So there are a lot of similarities. And um, certainly if you're bored and you want a nice, big, thick, hardback book on your nightstand, the book that I co-authored does have all 50 states cycling laws broken down if people are interested. But in general, as I said, all 50 states, cyclists are vehicles, same rights, same obligations. In all 50 states, cyclists have to use a white light on the front and a red light or a red reflector on the back from basically sun down through sun up give or take the wording changes, but more or less during the dark hours, you do have to have lights. And by the way, every state also requires that you be reflective to the sides. So you can be perfectly visible on the front and the back, but if someone approaches you at a perpendicular, you may be completely invisible to them from the sides. So you have to also be reflective to the sides. With respect to the two abreast, the common language used is that cyclists may not ride more than two abreast, basically ever, unless you're in a really wide bike lane and you can fit three in there. You pretty much can only ever be a maximum of two abreast. And you can only ride two abreast if you are not impeding the normal and reasonable flow of traffic. What does that mean? Well, that means in law enforcement, general terms, five or more cars are backed up behind you and your friends. So if you're starting to create a traffic jam behind you, that's really time for you and your friends to go single file. Otherwise, if a car just has to slow down for a moment behind you and your friend and then eventually pass, that's not considering impeding. One place where state laws do differ quite a bit is how far to the right a cyclist must ride in the roadway. Uh, most of us have heard as far to the right as practical or practicable. Here in Colorado, we have a really interesting standard, which is as far to the right as the cyclist deems safe, which is a really pro-cyclist perspective. Most states and most cities are as far to the right as is practicable, which means exactly as it sounds or maybe doesn't sound since that's a weird word that none of us ever use. But essentially... We want you towards the right-hand side of the road. We don't want you right on the very right-hand edge of the asphalt. No one expects you to be on the very edge of the roadway. Also, state legislatures don't expect you to ride over hazards on the side of the roadway, shrapnel, broken glass, dead animals, whatever the case may be. Um, but unless you are taking the lane, which is legal in many areas, you need to be towards the right-hand edge of the lane. So kind of in that right wheel rut, if you will. In most states, if the lane is too narrow to share, especially if it's a state that has adopted a three-foot passing law, which let's just say is roughly the length of your arm, three feet, give or take. If you can't share the lane and the car with the three feet between, it's really safest for the cyclist to just take the lane and ride in the center of the lane. Um, now, what does this mean in most states? Typically, you're not going to do it on an uphill where you're going four miles an hour and the posted speed limit is 55. What we're generally talking about, about taking the lane, it's also if you see a sharrow, which are the indications that say, like, this is also acceptable for the cyclist here, is we're trying to prevent cars from sideswiping you in narrow lanes. And it's also typically more like downtown congested areas or places where there's on-street parking to your right, which presents that hazard of the door zone, the people exiting their car doors. The last main topic I'll talk, I'll talk on is the one you address, which is stopping. 
most states require that cyclists, again, same rights, same responsibilities, posted stop sign, you have to stop just like you would in your car. If it's a red light, you have to stop just like it's in your car. Pretty much any posted signage applies to you on your bike as well. Um, then the question I always get is, well, do you have to put a foot down? Is that a stop? That's the gold standard. That's the one that's going to ensure that you don't get a ticket. But really what most law enforcement is looking for is that you've slowed down sufficiently that you can look both ways and proceed knowing for sure that it's safe. Uh, where law enforcement's going to give you a ticket is when they just watch you blaze through a stop sign like it doesn't apply to you. And um, uh, there are a few states and cities that are talking about this stop as yield, also known as an Idaho stop. Right now, Idaho obviously has it, but it's it allows cyclists to treat stop signs as yield signs and stop lights as stop signs. So it's something that you definitely want to know for your local jurisdiction, and it can be something that can confuse motorists if they don't know that it's in place, because obviously their perception is that a cyclist is running a red light. Um, but more or less, the, the case law or the statute, the requirements are pretty similar state to state. And in general, if you just conduct yourself like you do in your car, you're going to be doing really well. Megan, if a cyclist is hit by a car, assuming that she's still conscious, what are the first few things that she should do following that accident? Um, okay, so first I'm going to correct you, uh, and don't take this personally, but we are trying really, really hard to remove the word accident. So we're trying to call them crashes or collisions. In fact, there's a whole hashtag movement called crash, not accident. And we're just simply trying to move people away from like the minimization of these collisions. And... Um, and so you can Google that crash, not accident hashtag and learn more about that. But it's interesting because, again, just this morning we were filming videos and I had to play the cyclist who had just been hit and we were going through the things that we want people doing. So one of the big things, assuming that you're with people, hopefully you're not by yourself, is that we were teaching people this morning, don't take the cyclist helmet off, just stabilize their head in the helmet on the pavement because it actually provides a really nice like cervical neutral position for your spine. And you also just typically don't want to move a cyclist unless they're at risk of being hit again or harmed in another way. We typically want to leave people where they are. I've had several clients who on all appearances seemed quote fine with a scuffed ankle or a little bit of road rash. And then they get to the ER and they find they actually have a fractured pelvis or they have a significant head injury or what have you, things that aren't always apparent. So typically leaving the cyclist where they are is ideal. Obviously 911 should be called, police and ambulance should be summoned. I recommend that cyclists take the ride in the ambulance 99% of the time, unless it's just honestly gonna bankrupt you. And even then, I still recommend it because you'd be amazed what types of injuries are discovered. It's not often that a cyclist truly just gets right up and is, quote, fine from being impacted by a vehicle. So if they do have friends present, one of the other things I always emphasize is if this happens to someone that you're with, take pictures of everything. Because once that collision scene is cleaned up, it will never look that way again. And law enforcement does a pretty good job investigating these collisions, but not always. And sometimes witnesses are missed at the scene. If your friend can be interviewing people there and getting names and phone numbers, taking pictures of the car, taking pictures of the scene, taking pictures of whatever, that may be the only opportunity to collect some of that at the scene evidence. And uh, once that scene is cleaned up, that evidence is forever gone. And so if you're with someone, that's really important. Obviously, to the extent that the driver at fault party looks like they're trying to flee, uh, if you are one of the healthy individuals who's with someone that's been hit, you need to take every possible measurement to keep someone from driving away. And I've heard all kinds of stories about cyclists essentially encircling a car to keep them from doing that. Um, people panic. People panic at the scene, especially if they're under uh, the influence of marijuana or drugs or booze or whatever, um, or they realize they've done a very t terrible thing and sometimes they'll try to leave the scene. So that can be another big thing. When a cyclist is hit to the extent that they are still conscious, it's very hard not to want to just say all kinds of things. And we call these excited utterances. Um, it's really just best to just lay low and kind of keep your mouth shut and just focus on your medical situation. Oftentimes we blurt out things that have nothing to do with anything, especially once you've been put on like a morphine drip. And um, we, it's just better to just lay low and let, let the people care for you that are providing you care. <laughs> 
Okay. And Megan, I, well, from my personal experience, and I just feel maybe this is how it is, but I feel like a lot of cyclists are hit by drivers making left-hand turns. Like I I mentioned my own accident. I was hit by a driver making a left-hand turn. It's something I try to pay attention to now a lot when I am actually driving, but are left-hand turns actually more dangerous? Is it, or is it just my perception? And are there other situations when cyclists are the most vulnerable to motorists? So I would say it's a tie. I'm going to speak just specifically to the cases that I've handled, um, because those are obviously the ones that I have the most intimate knowledge of. I would say it's, it's almost split. The left-hand turn that you're describing is the failure to yield the motorist that has the left green, but not the green arrow. The cyclist is oncoming, going straight through on a green and the car for whatever reason makes the left-hand turn either directly in front of the cyclist or directly into the cyclist. And we hear everything from, I didn't see them. The sun was in my eyes they were going faster than I thought, uh, all the way to, I'm a car. I thought the bike had to yield to me and things like that. Certainly that exists. Certainly when a cyclist, uh, notices that a car is about to make a left-hand turn, you should be high alert and anticipate the fact that they may turn left in front of you. That is a very, uh, likely situation that you want to definitely come into those intersections with eyes wide open. I would say that is matched only by the frequency that, that I see what we call the right hook, which is where you're on the right side of the road going straight, potentially in a bike lane. And the car to your left is also going the same direction you are. And they decide to make that right hand turn either again, directly in front of the cyclist or into the cyclist. And we're actually seeing an increase of those with the addition of bike lanes, which overall keep us safer but at intersections, they present this unique challenge because either the motorist has no idea we're on the right side of their car or they thought that they passed us way back there when, in fact, we've been right next to them the whole time, all the way to, again, that mentality that motorists think, well, I'm in the car, so clearly the cyclist has to stop for me. What we suggest in that scenario for cyclists to ensure that they don't get turned into is to actually exit the bike lane or come off the right side of the road, position themselves in the center of the lane, Obviously, when clear to do so, you're not going to swerve out in front of a car, but then you proceed straight through on the green light and then you make a way back into the bike lane or the right-hand side of the road. Because that's a really common one. And especially as a cyclist, you're looking straight ahead. You're not really paying attention to what's happening over your left shoulder. And then sure enough, there's that car and they decide to turn. So those are the two by far most common dynamic intersection turns. And I would just say every cyclist needs to have head up for every intersection and be as visible as possible. And many of us are cyclists, but we're also drivers too, right? So I'm curious what we can do as drivers to make the road safer for cyclists and pedestrians. And I guess also you've talked a little bit about motorist perceptions of cyclists and, you know, as more people are getting on bikes and bike commuting or just riding for, you know, health and fun, you know, is there kind of an increased drive to educate motorists and try and change that perception? Is there anything, any movements we can be a part of if we want to within our community, start up any initiatives that we should know about stuff like that? I love this question. Great question. Um, you asked me about initiatives or education promoters. So let me start there. I'm just going to speak to the place of being here in Denver. We've had 10,000 people moving here a month for like the last two years. I mean, our economy has been so incredibly strong that we're seeing this influx of people from out of state. You know, the weed industry drew a lot of people here too. And so we have a lot of these out of state people who come from places that are not accustomed to the level of cycling that we have here. Um, I am encouraged by the fact that driver's ed now spends a full day teaching their young drivers how to drive around cyclists and And in this area where we have canyons and mountain climbs, I see them taking these young kids up very popular cycling roads to teach them how to give us three feet and how to pass safely and how to look for us. So I'm very encouraged by that. One of the big movements we've been trying to push is to get a couple more cycling questions added to the DMV test. And then I know that this will probably never happen, but we're also wishing for sort of a supplement that out-of-state residents would have to take a new driver's test when they move here, just because Colorado has a very different cycling culture than, you know, I'm from Nebraska. You don't see nearly as many cyclists in Nebraska as you see here. And so there is an education component. I would say more importantly and more uh, higher influence, though, is for you to demonstrate proper driving behavior to other people when you're with them. For your coworkers or your neighbors or your friends who don't ride bikes to observe you when you drive and watch you checking your side mirrors and what whatever for cyclists to your right, to your left, 
acknowledging cyclists, giving them three feet, driving very safely and carefully around cyclists, having other people observe that behavior in you is very, very powerful. It's, it's like we say in bike racing, let your legs do the talking, sort of let your conduct speak for itself. And the same is true when you're out on your bike. That's why I named my bike team, the bike ambassadors, because I think every time we are out on our bikes, it's incumbent upon us to demonstrate great exemplary behavior because people are always watching. And that's true for motorists as well as other cyclists, as well as just little kids and well as just pedestrians and what have you. So that's why I think it's really important every time you ride your bike that you do it very, very well. And you do it with a knowledge that you are hopefully converting motorists who don't like cyclists into motorists who accept our presence on the road as being equal. Uh, you asked me about movements. Um, one of the most powerful and I think successful groups, and it's free to join, is peopleforbikes.org. They happen to be based here in Boulder, but they do bike projects, green lane projects, bike infrastructure all over the country. They raise a ton of money and they collect a ton of statistics, which are being used to influence city planners and implementing this infrastructure. And then they'll bring this grant money in and they'll drop in a bike lane or a protected bike lane or a green lane. And it's pretty amazing to see the work that they are. Um, <clears throat> they're really attacking it from all angles. So that's why I like them. They're just the most successful, I think, as opposed to some advocacy groups that, you know, collect signatures or collect money and then we don't really see what they're doing. And Megan, it's obvious from your social media accounts that you're a huge proponent of bike commuting. And so I kind of want to know what's so special about bike commuting and do you have some tips for someone who might want to start riding to work or riding to the store, riding to the swimming pool? Yes, 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 yes. <clears throat> this is what I call my bike gospel. You know, I was a bike racer for years and I would go on a four hour road ride and then I'd come home and get in my car and drive to the grocery store. And it didn't really dawn on me until I started getting more and more involved in bike advocacy. And I realized, oh my gosh, those of us who are competitive athletes are by far the most visible out on the roads. Um, we're the most prevalent. We're out on the roads the most. We ride the most miles, blah, blah, blah. It's really important for us to also be using our bikes for transportation. This can't just be about recreation. It really was abundantly apparent to me that that was the case. And so all I did was buy a good bike lock. And I started riding my bike to the grocery store, to the office, to the doctor. A couple years of that, and I started to really take stock of where I was driving. And I realized that I had a doctor in South Denver and a dentist over here and a hair salon over here. And I thought, this is ludicrous. In the age of strip malls and you know all the things that you would possibly need in your neighborhood, I drew a circle using one of those um, protractors. I printed out a map of my house and I drew a 10 mile radius circle and I realized everything I need is within 10 miles. And so I changed all of my providers and really the airport here in DIA, which is about 40 miles is like one of the only places I drive my car anymore um, because there's just no need. And it's become to the point where I try to see how many days I can go without starting my car. It's so satisfying to go buy my food specifically by bike. I love grocery shopping by bike more than anything because you are only able to buy so many things because you can only carry so much. And so you're really selective with what you buy. And then you tend to buy stuff that's fresh. And then you tend to only buy a couple days worth, which means you're always eating fresh. And then there's just this intentionality that comes with your food. And when you're eating it, it's not just this like mindless consumption. It's, you know, I actually had to go ride my bike to go buy this and I had to pick it out and bring it home. It's so satisfying. And then I walk into the grocery store and I'm wearing my helmet and then I start talking to the cashier and then that turns into a really cool human moment. And once again, you know, I have all these moments with motorists and people at red lights talking to me about my, what I'm carrying. I've started getting my dry cleaning by bike. So I've figured out a way to kind of fold my dry cleaning over my basket where things don't get all wrinkled and that turns into cool conversations. And, um, and, and I'll just share that I believe my perception motorist perception of me when I'm in my street clothes commuting is different than they treat me when I'm in my Lycra and my bike gear. And I think the difference is that they realize I'm actually transporting myself. It's like a legitimate trip and I'm actually going somewhere and I'm actually doing something as opposed to just riding to get fit. And I've never had one issue on my commuter bike or in my commuter outfit from um, with a motorist. Never, not one. It's only ever been positive. So for those looking to get started in commuting, you honestly just need a really, really good bike lock. Obviously, if you have a very, very expensive you know, road bike or triathlon bike, it might be worth just buying a little beater to use just in case it gets stolen. I bought a Schwinn at a pawn shop for $100, and I think I've got like 2,000 miles on that thing um, because 
you know, it's kind of like, I'm going to lock it up and I hope nothing happens to it. But if it walks away, I'm not going to be devastated. It's not my, you know, $10,000, whatever. So uh, that would be a second investment. And then obviously something to carry your stuff in. So I just started with a backpack and that works well for me most of the time. But I did install a basket on my commuter bike for grocery shopping because then my fruits and my bananas and stuff weren't getting all smushed. <laughs> and I also just kind of liked getting that weight off of my back and onto the bike. But you can certainly invest in panniers and all that kind of fancy stuff too. When I lived in Baltimore <clears throat> City, my roommate and I would do our grocery shopping by bike usually, and we would call it macho shopping. And we'd be like, it. can you also get this? And she'd be like, nope, I'm macho shopping. Like, can't carry it. <laughs> I love Wait, that. Wait, can, really, can I ask what... It really does what, you think what you're buying. Yeah, can I ask, what is your uh, your record for number of days <sighs> without starting a car? Um, well, so I have to confess that I do spend parts of my winters in Scottsdale and, uh, based on that city being pancake flat and also bike lanes everywhere, it's actually easier for me there than it is here in Colorado. But, um, you know, three weeks is totally doable, uh, where I don't touch. And then once you've gone over a week without touching your car, you really become resistant to the idea. It's like, so a friend will call and say, Hey, do you want to meet for coffee downtown? No, <laughs> no, I don't. Cause I have to drive. I know it becomes kind of pathetic, but <clears throat> No, That's I love awesome. it. Bike commuting is something I've, I've started doing since moving to Montana. Oh. And it was, it is, it's great. And it's so much faster a lot of the time. I mean, yes. granted, like I, it's like half a mile. A lot of the time is like where I'm going. Like the furthest place I go is a pool, which is a mile away, but, um, it's faster. I'm yeah. shocked. Like, I'm like, wow, it's yeah, it can be great. So it's, it's fun totally. to hear that story. It's the best. It's the best thing. And I mean, I could go on and on. Okay. Here's a great book for you. It's called, uh, um, Bikeonomics, how cycling can save the economy. And it's by a gal named Ellie blue. And she talks about three big things that cycling can do. One is our obesity epidemic. Um, they're saying within like 10 to 15 years, over 51% of our population will be obese. And, um, in large part, our kids are suffering from that with the removal of recess and you can't ride your bikes to school and that kind of stuff. Um, so obviously just the wear and tear on healthcare system and like just our, our ability to take care of ourselves, pulling us out of our cars and putting us on our bikes is amazing and magical. It's been proven to, um, help kids show up more alert, more attentive. They retain, all of us are more energetic and, and able to retain if we do it before work or school or whatever. Um, number two is the road system. We, we fit, we fiscally cannot keep up with the repair to our road system. The loads are becoming heavier and heavier and roads. We just honestly can't even keep up with the expense. And off the top of my head, I don't remember what the third one is right now, but it's an amazing book that pretty much just goes on and on about the ways that cycling can help us fix our world. And I do think they make the world a better place. <laughs> Megan, that's pretty clear. And you say that <laughs> it is your own personal mission to get more people riding bikes, especially women. And so you mentioned your ambassador team. And can you tell us a little bit about that team of female cyclists and why <clears throat> you think it is more important to get women on bikes? So I have been running and sponsoring cycling teams since 2006. And back in the day, especially when I was racing uh, at the top of my road game, it was a NRC Cat 1 to elite women's road team, essentially professional, although not, not paid like professional, but, um, my perception was always that there were plenty of opportunities for the men. I wanted to start and run a women's team. Cause that's where we're always struggling with sponsors and things. And then as I started to transition towards my professional career, I started moving away from the elite racing and started really focusing on the beginner racing and started a women's women's beginner team to bring women from riding into bike racing and kind of facilitate that transition. And then basically serve as a farm team for other higher um, level teams. And again, my perception is that for every one team focused on women, there's about 10 focused on men. There's just plenty of opportunities for new male cyclists. I didn't see that happening for women where women could actually get race support and monetary reimbursement and coaching and drills and such. And then as my own personal preference has really shifted primarily away from racing and more to commuting and realizing the magic of it and what it means for our world, my focus followed in suit with the team. And so it's now 10 women that I've called the bike ambassadors. And these are women who all do competitive events. I do Ironman. A couple of us are going to do Dirty Kanza in a couple of weeks. One of our gals is doing the seven-day BC stage race, huge mountain bike race. So we certainly still compete, but it's not our focus. Our focus is on commuting and literally sharing the challenges that we've learned and overcome with others, hopefully women, via our blog and via our uh, social media 
to try and open that door for other women. And the, the, the nuts and bolts, the basic reason for me is empowerment. I believe in the power of bikes to empower women. There's a lot of really scary aspects to commuting. How do I figure out what route I want to take? What if it goes through a scary part of town? What if I'm riding at night? What if I get lost? What if I get a flat tire and I don't know how to change it? All of these apprehensions and how incredibly powerful and in, and empowering to teach women how to conquer all of those things and overcome them and then just kick ass commuting and set this example for their daughters and other young women and also women that we live next to and that we work with. And that's always been our goal is bringing more women into commuting. Um, you know, bike racing and triathlon is really important, but it's like a, it's a very small number of our overall, you know, cycling culture. And really, I think to continue growing the number of cyclists that we see out there, we have to have people embrace it as an alternate form of transportation. And I believe cycling becomes safe for the more cyclists we have out there doing it because it becomes less of a anomaly and it becomes more of a norm. I mean, insert example, exhibit one, like Amsterdam, you know, Copenhagen, everyone rides over there. It's um, so acceptable that like driving a car is the exception to the rule. So I think it starts with women. They're our number one um, decision maker with respect to household spending. They are spending more money in the bike and the triathlon industries than men. Like they're shifting the, the culture. They're shaping the product development. And so I think really for this cycling phenomenon to continue to, to gain traction in the U.S., it starts with women. And that's why I focus my efforts there. And can you share your, uh, the blog address and the social media where we can learn all these great things and follow your team? Yeah, it is bikeambassadorsplural.com. And you can find our blog post there. And in fact, our gal, our mountain bike gal, um, Amy just posted yesterday or today. She has made it her, her real goal this year to embrace commuting and she's finding it harder than she expected whether due to having to pack her yoga mat or just plan ahead a little bit, things take more time. You have to plan a little bit more logistically. And so she's totally fired up and turned on by the prospect of getting to share the challenges that she's facing with other people and hopefully helping them overcome them. And Megan, you, you mentioned normalizing bike riding and making the roads safer. And do you ever think there's a time when the roads will be so safe and collisions so rare that we don't need a cyclist lawyer? Can you, can you uh, educate people so that you are out of work? <laughs> you know, it's my goal too. Every time I talk to a group of law enforcement, cyclists, motorists, community groups, I always say my goal is to put myself out of business, not because um, people are calling other lawyers, but because simply cyclists don't need us anymore. And, um, I really hope to see that in my lifetime. It is my mission to get more people on bikes and also to help them do it safely, skillfully, and legally. And, um, in the back of my mind, I already have my next business model, which is that I'm going to um, mow lawns. And I would love it if, uh, my phone stopped ringing because cyclists weren't hurt anymore. It would be like the true fulfillment of my life's purpose and my, my legacy, that would be fantastic. And then I'll just go mow lawns for a living. <laughs> you know, when I raced Ironman Boulder, actually, I had an Airbnb with this guy and there's a lot of stories that came out of this guy. But one of them was he was actually starting a business for a robotic lawnmower. And he was like doing these test runs in his backyard. And so that's, one of my like finest memories of Boulder to this day. So you might want to look, I'll send you his name. You can look into it, make sure that business hasn't taken off before you start yours. <laughs> no, but I don't want robots. I want to be the one pushing the mower. And my whole plan is to do a mission free. So just like human powered mowers. Yeah. Like sharpening the blades, no engines, no gasoline. Uh, There'll be and- demand for that. There will always I, be demand. I for know. That. I know. That's robots can't take over there. everything. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Megan. This has been an incredible conversation and I've learned a lot and, you know, there's things that I definitely want to put into practice in my own life. So oh. hopefully our listeners feel the same, but thank you for, uh, for coming on and we will definitely follow your, your team and you know, your, your social media and maybe, maybe pick up a few commuter tips in there too. I would love that. Thank you. That's great. Well, Haley, that was super informational for me. And I know that the first thing I'm actually going to do after this is pull up my car insurance and double check those items that she talked about, the med pay, the PIP, or and the UMUIM limits that I have, because it's definitely not something I took into consideration when I was getting that policy. And I want to for sure double check that what I'm having is helpful to me as a cyclist. 
Yes. And I can speak from experience that it was kind of wild being in the hospital and they did not even ask me for my health insurance card in the original part. They just, I had like a woman whose job was to come in and like, that was her job was she handled motor collision accidents. And she was the one who came in and talked to me about insurance. And one of the things they wanted was my car insurance. So it is, it's fascinating. And it's something that all of us should know more about, whether you're a commuter, whether you are a professional triathlete or a recreational cyclist and even pedestrians. I mean, it's something that we all need to be aware of, but I did. I loved hearing from Megan. I loved her, her enthusiasm for bike safety and also her enthusiasm as a you know, entrepreneur. I, uh, that when people told her not to go out and start her own law firm and she th- said, uh, but why not? So I did. I, I love that part. <laughs> she was super fun to talk to and very fun to follow on Instagram. She's at cyclist underscore lawyer for people looking for that. And Haley, I think that's just about it for this week, but just a reminder to everyone, if you want to support us, great ways to do so are by drinking coffee. So it doesn't get much better than that. And the coffee method has those two blends, the Live Feisty blend and the Iron Women blend. You can order or have your subscription come on a monthly basis. Directly helps support us, and we appreciate that. And then there's also the new shopping portal on livefeisty.com. And you can go there and get tanks, hoodies, maybe some cute outfits to start bike commuting in. What do you think, Haley? Yes. um, I know I love my my tank. And the hoodies and leggings, I'm going to have to check those out. I might be uh, navigating over to livefeisty.com once we're off the off the show and see what's on there. All right, Haley. Well, safe travels tomorrow. I hope packing goes smoothly from here and keep us updated. We will be cheering for you. All the best as you go to race this week. Thanks, Alyssa. Like biking, you're really moving your feet and it's fun because you can actually steer where you're going when you want to. Whereas in swimming and running, you might have to plan ahead because in both of those things, either in swimming, you can run out of breath or in running, you could trip and fall. The Iron Women podcast is produced by Live Feisty Media. Our awesome hosts are Alyssa Gadeski and Haley Chura. Our editor is Aaron Hamilton. Our social media queen is Danielle Adino. And our producer is my mom, Sarah Grouse. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Leave us a review on iTunes. And have a great week of swimming, biking, and running. Bye for now. (laughs) 